Well, to get us sort of aimed in the right direction to consider this passage, I want you to think about John chapter 6. John chapter 6, I think, stands out as one of those watershed passages where we recognize the effect of the teaching of the exclusivity of Christ upon many people who think they would like to follow Him. In that story, it's interesting if you read John 6, 1 and 2, the multitude is following Him, and then at the very end of the chapter it says, and He, he said to the twelve, and began with thousands following Him, at least 5,000, if not 10, 15, upwards of 20,000 people. And then He taught them the truth about the exclusivity of Himself and salvation. If you read the chapter, it's, it's amazing how many times He says, Me, me, I am the bread, I am the bread. Eat my flesh, my flesh. Drink my blood, my blood. Over and over. At the end of the chapter, Jesus said to the twelve after these thousands have walked away, and you can imagine they're watching them leave. And then He gathers, grabs their attention. He says, You want to go away as well? They're leaving. The crowd's leaving. The majority is leaving. You want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In essence, Peter is stating this truth. Whatever it is that those people think they're going to find out there walking away is nothing to be compared with what we have if we stay here with you. His, his words were often difficult to hear, but they were the words of eternal life. Whatever difficult there, difficulty there might be in the words of Christ and the teachings of Christ and in the way that the teachings of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ as that confronts the world and our, our natural condition, whatever difficulty there might be there, that's nothing compared with losing eternal life. That's nothing compared with eternal death. That was the idea. Now, the book of the Revelation was written to real people in real churches who were constantly being tempted to turn and to walk away with the multitude, with the crowd. To walk away from Christ and specifically to walk away from the visible manifestation of their relationship with Christ in the local church. The stakes were very high for these people. Devotion was costly for these people. The allurements of the world were very strong for these people. And yet they are reminded over and over again that whatever else they might find out there cannot compare with what they already had. That's what he's, he's been putting before them. Throughout the letter we've been able to see that the world's offerings will perish, while the prize awarded to the saints will be everlasting. Now in this final vision, we're looking at what is the longest and most detailed description of that eternal reward. He's putting it before our eyes. So far in this chapter, we've seen that there will be a new creation, a new Jerusalem. God will dwell with man. The effects of the fall will be erased. God will be the portion of His people and the lake of fire will be the portion of all unbelievers. All of that in just in verses 1 through 8. 
Now as we move forward, beginning now in verse 9 through the end of the chapter and into chapter 22, as this book often does, what was stated succinctly in verses 1 to 8 is now going to be opened up with more vivid detail. It's very important for us to remember as we move forward that the substance doesn't change. Even as we expound upon what's been stated, the substance of the matter does not change. Ladies, when you're in the kitchen and you're cutting an onion, peeling an onion, you'll never get to the point in that onion where you go so deep that you find something besides onion. That's the picture here. No matter how far we dig down into this picture and and open up the things, we're still going to be seeing the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the absence of all curse, and God dwelling with His people. That's what we're seeing. No matter how odd the language gets, we're seeing the same thing. We'll never get to the point where we're seeing something substantially different than a new creation where God dwells with His people. That's the prize as we've said over and over. Now, as we open up verses 9 to 14, I want to first prove that what we're seeing here is the church in her eternal state. Now, that might seem to be sort of a given, but I want to do that because there are some in our day who would suggest that the the new heavens and the new earth of chapter 21 has been a present reality since the days of Christ. So I want to prove that what we're seeing is actually something still to come. The church in the eternal state. Now first I'll remind you that this is the eternal state. We've done this twice already. I'll do it again. Chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Nothing accursed, throne of God, in it. What is it? Verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city. The city is the it. Chapter 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. Chapter 21, verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. Chapter 21, verse 10, he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city. The theme from this point moving through to almost the end of chapter 22 is the city. And this city we're seeing is in a state or in a time, I want to use that word, when there is nothing accursed. The curse is gone. Noahic covenant over all aspects of the curse upon man and sin and creation is erased. And that is only to come in the eternal state, which will follow the revealing of the new creation. That will follow the final judgment. The final judgment follows the 1,000 years of early in chapter 20. So this is the eternal state, what the New Testament refers to as the age to come. Next, I'll prove that this is a picture of the church. And I'll do that in two ways. By way of comparison and by way of description. First, by way of comparison to Babylon. Look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Compare that to chapter 17, verse 1. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. You see the parallel. There's clearly an intentional, linguistic, and visionary parallel between chapter 17 and chapter 21 and what's being revealed. And if you pay attention, there are, there are many contrasts that we could draw here, but we can see at least this. We have now the bride over against what was the prostitute, the wife versus the cheap imitation, the homemaker versus a home wrecker, a life giver. Wives, you're life givers to your husbands. A wife giver versus a life taker. Here we see a city built by God. That's over against Babylon. The original Babylon and this Babylon is a city built by man. Here we see a city coming down out of heaven from God. What is Babylon but a picture of man's attempt to build up to God? One is a bride adorned for her husband. The other is a harlot who's adorned for seduction. Now throughout the Revelation, since we've been introduced to Babylon, we've seen this contrast over and over. The counterpart to Babylon, the city of man, is the church, the city of God. That's the picture that's being uh, set forth now that we see this language. This is a picture of the church by way of that comparison, but we also notice it by way of description. Notice how this city is described. Verse 9, she, or this city is described as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In Ephesians 5, we have the parallel clearly drawn between a husband and a wife and Christ and the church. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That wasn't a direct quote. I just drew out those, those clear similes, even as, like, this way, in the same way. There's a comparison. The bride of Christ is the church. We also know from John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we saw that in Revelation chapter 5. The Lamb standing as though it had been slain was Christ. So if we wanted to put it in the form of a question, in the Bible, and in particular in the Revelation, who is the bride, the wife of the Lamb? Well, it is the church who is the wife or the bride of Christ. It is the body of redeemed saints. This is the church. Next, we see the language in verse 10 of the holy city, Jerusalem. Now in chapter 11, we also see the language of the church being referred to as a holy city over against the great city, which was the city of man. In Hebrews 12.22, the church is called Mount Zion, the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. In verse 12, the church is described using the language of the twelve tribes of Israel. In chapter 7, we also saw that the twelve tribes are synonymous with 
quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation standing before the throne of God. That is the saints, the redeemed, glorified church, the true Israel of God. That's how that language is used in this book. Anytime we see the number 12 taken from the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ, it always points us to the people of God. Some sort of reference to the people of God. Well, here in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's a city built on 12 foundations. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. There the foundation is apostles and prophets. Here it's apostles. The the idea is the same. It's that apostolic preaching that centers upon the person and the work of Christ. This city is the church of Jesus Christ. The saints of God, the redeemed. The city is people. It's the church in her eternal state. John is being shown the church in her eternal state. Now, why is John being given this picture? Well, simply put, like the rest of the book, it's meant to comfort saints who are suffering. It's meant to console them. But more specifically here, it's being contrasted with Babylon. And throughout the book, it's been contrasted to Babylon. That serves as a warning to these early early Christians against any kind of allegiance with the world, with Babylon. And for those who are tempted, this picture shows that no matter how difficult their affliction may be, they must not entertain even a hint of a thought or a compulsion to go and cast in their lot with that city of man. One city is falling and will be destroyed. One city is built by God and will be or will endure for eternity. Whatever they might find elsewhere, it can't compare with what they already have. This is the church in the eternal state. It's a picture of the consummate church or the glorified church or the victorious church. You might want to call it the church triumphant. Now you might object and say, wait a second, I thought that we were going to be seeing the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the absence of all curse, and God dwelling with His people. Right, exactly. That is the picture. All of these biblical themes come together here at the end of the canon, revealing the eternal state of the redeemed as one picture, a redeemed world, a redeemed people, and all of it is the dwelling place of God with man. I wish we had the time to draw the parallels between the Feast of Booths and the dwelling of God with individuals. But this is the picture. God dwelling with His people. That is the existence into eternity. Now, we compare this with things that we've actually recently heard. In the beginning, before the fall, Adam was placed, get this, in a garden which was in Eden, which was in the east, which was on the earth. And the purpose was for Adam to to work and keep this garden and expand this temple dwelling of God with man to cover the whole earth. But after the fall, then we saw Israel. This is a holy nation amongst other nations in the land of Canaan, which was a a tiny plot of land on on the globe that we call the earth. Once Christ comes, we see the church, a holy nation, made of people from all nations. The church has no plot of land that's ours, 
Because we are, as the church and as individuals, the temple of God. The point is that after the fall, there's always been that distinction that we've heard about, the holy and the common. That which is holy has always dwelt in the midst of and been surrounded all around it with that which is common. But at the consummation, this is the picture we're getting here, at the consummation, the entirety of that holy common distinction is erased so that there is no holy city in the midst of the other cities of the world. There is no holy nation amongst the other nations. There's no holy place surrounded by common places. Everything is the holy. The entire cosmos is regenerated. The meek, the saints of God, inherit the earth. It's ours, the whole thing. The people are the city and the mountain which covers the earth and God dwells there with His people. In other words, as we've seen many times, all that has been ruined by the fall and sin is redeemed and restored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the amazing thing. This consummate, glorified state of the church is not altogether different than her state at the present time. This is not a brand new, never before considered, hinted at state of existence or condition. What God has already begun to do in Christ and in His church is of the same essence as what will be in eternity. What we are seeing here is simply the completed form of what's already begun. Remember the writer to the Hebrews refers to the gathered church experiencing the taste of the heavenly gift and tasting the powers of the age to come. Just a taste of the powers of the age to come. We're getting it. We're experiencing that a little, little by little. What will someday be true of the universal church in a consummated sense is already becoming true in local churches in a pre-consummation sense. We can think of it like a skyscraper. If you see land cleared out and you, you wonder, what are, what are they going to build there? And then all of a sudden you see foundations or, or footers poured and then you see big cranes bringing in huge steel beams and they're erecting this structure. And then eventually you see the completed picture. It's not two different things. It's, they're all of the same substance. It's the same building, even in that pre-merely skeletal sense. It's the same building. And you definitely wouldn't want to skip those early stages of, of laying the foundation and building the structure because that's what's going to hold the building up. That's what's actually going to keep the thing enduring for the long haul, enduring the elements. In the same way, the structure and form of the church of Christ is already being put together. The foundation has already been laid. To use Paul's language, preachers are still now building upon that foundation and saints are building upon that foundation of what's already being laid. Paul could say to the saints in, in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right now, you're being built together into a dwelling place. It's already happening. It's in process. And it's, it's this reality which makes the truths of the Revelation and the rest of the New Testament significant and useful for the church in every generation. Because the, the authors, the apostles, here John, he's not saying, well, just hold on. You have nothing to cling to. I can't even... There's, there's, just, just 
take my word for it, it'll get better at some point at the second coming of Christ. He's not saying that. They were reminded, and, and we are being reminded, that what we have in Christ and in His Holy Spirit, and even in the local church, is the real substance of the age to come in seed form. It's like in all of those epistles where the Apostle Paul has to combat some heresy. We heard from Galatians. You know, the, the, the outsiders come in and they say, well, if you want to really be the offspring of Abraham, and the whole letter is Paul saying, you're already the offspring of Abraham. You've already got the real thing. That's, what, that's sort of what John's doing here. They were being tempted to go out into the world and get something better, and he's showing them, no, you've already got the fullest real substance. You've already got the best, the best thing. Babylon should not entice the saints because we've got the real thing. A prostitute does not entice a happily married man who loves his wife. She would be nothing more than a cheap, disgusting imitation, maybe worthy of his pity and his concern. But there's no real temptation there. That's the picture here. This vision of the church is, is not, remi- not to remind the saints of all that they don't have but will someday get, just take my word for it. It's meant to contrast what the world is offering us now with what we already have in seed form and will have into eternity. Now to unpack that idea a little bit, notice how these verses describe the city. We have the wall, we have the gates, we have the foundations. In other words, this is just the basic structure of the glorified church. It's what gives it its form, its strength, and its rigidity. So we could ask, what do we learn here about the strength of the church? What are some of the truths shown here about the church which, are, which act like, like iron and rebar to reinforce that structure now and forever? What is this great thing of which we are a part even now when we gather as a church? What makes it good? What makes it strong? What is the essential strength of the church? Is it its efficiency in humanitarian relief? Is the strength of the church found in the fact that we've got enough men that we can swoop down and clean up after a hurricane and swoop back? Is that what has kept the church enduring for the ages? Is it our ability to provide a a healthy atmosphere for deep and lasting friendships? Is that what has, has kept the church thriving for centuries? Why has the church lasted so long and how can it last forever? What gives the church this enduring strength and character? Here we have several things and I want to draw your attention to them. First, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. We see that in verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Men, how do you think of your wife? What level of devotion do you have to your wife? What would you do to protect your wife? Do you feel those morbid chains of bondage binding you to your wife every day? Do you wake up every day and have to force yourself to make the decision that I guess, I guess she'll still be my wife? You lay your head down at night assuming 
today's the last day. My commitment's run out. I'm done. This, this, is, this is over. Hopefully you're saying, of course not. If we being evil have any level of love, any level of devotion, any level of willingness, nobody's making us, willingness to give ourselves to our wives, how much more do you think the Lord of glory loves His bride? How much more devoted is He to His church than we are to our wives? How much more willing is He to give Himself to His bride? His love for the church is the love after which all human marriages are patterned. His devotion is the archetype and standard of love and devotion. His willingness to save a people is the origin and source and pattern of any willingness in any human husband to love his wife. Wives, any felt sense of love or devotion or willingness you get from your husband, even the moments of greatest love where you just, you just feel loved, you feel nurtured, you feel protected, you just stop and you think, He really does love me. That's like the dust which wafts off of the love of Christ for His church. It's an extension of His love who is love incarnate. And so we as the church can rest in the love, devotion, and willingness of Christ to give Himself for us and to us. And that's true already. As we've seen, Christ loved the church. Gave Himself up for her. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And so it will be for all of eternity. Whereas a man's love might grow cold. There are many men, even professing Christian men, who have said, I just fell out of love. Maybe they will stay in that committed marriage and they'll continue to give, but in their hearts there's no passion, there's no desire for their wives. Christ's love can only increase. It can only grow hotter into eternity. A man's devotion might sputter at times like there's air in the lines. Christ's love only increases and and pushes harder and with more power and more devotion. In the eternal state, the church remains the everlasting bride of the Lamb, the object of His infinite and effectual love. In Revelation 19, we saw that it's the marriage supper which still awaits the church. We're looking for that consummation day. The full consummation and celebration of our marriage to Christ. We're still looking forward to that. So, whatever blessing, whatever benefit we have now, whatever nearness of experience we might have with Christ, whatever knowledge we might have in His goodness, we can always keep in the back of our minds, we're still waiting for the full consummation. We're still waiting for the celebration of the union. We're still waiting for it to get good. Even in our experiences now, now we have the seed, but then we will taste the full fruit of having Christ as our bridegroom and that for eternity. Now how much better is that than what Babylon offers? She offers union with the beast, which is just going to destroy. She makes promises up front, which she cannot Provide. She entices the eyes but cannot satisfy the soul. She pleases for a moment and then those pleasures turn to sorrow and they take men down into hell. 
If you're inclined to run after the world and into the arms of Babylon, remember, God has already ruined many Babylons. They have risen, they have fallen. They have risen, they have fallen constantly from the beginning of time. Who would be so foolish as to buy stock in a company that has never gained but always only ever lost? That's the comparison. Don't run after that. Look what you've got. You have something now that is going to endure into eternity because you are a part of the bride of Christ. Secondly, the church is a holy city built by God. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Heavenly origins. The city is built upon a a divine blueprint. It's built out of spiritual materials. Again, the author to the Hebrews could say, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The church is God's city. The church is heaven's Jerusalem. In Ephesians 2, you're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's God. God is building a dwelling. And even while on the earth, the church and the kingdom of Christ are not of this world. They're not of earthly origin. They're not of earthly making. They're not of earthly power. They're not of earthly elements. It's it's a heavenly city built by God. And as we look into the future, we do just like Abraham. We're looking just like Abraham was. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, was he looking for the church? Not in its present state. No, he was looking forward to the consummation church, the the final city of God that was built by God. He knew that that was there. That's what we're looking forward to. Hopefully, there's a shadow of that even as we look forward to the Lord's Day. We're looking forward to it. There's something in us that says... I'm really kind of looking forward to just being around the people of God. I just want to be around the church. That's just a piece of what is looking forward to an innumerable host of uses. Now, we don't know them, right? Sometimes we might visit other churches and we say, eh, just, it's not like home, but then it will be. An innumerable multitude of, of, of glorified uses, our people, will be there with them, built by God, not knit together by some, some human strategy. Again, not, not trust falls and things like that. You know, tell me some intimate thing about yourself. The Spirit of God knitting people together. That's what we're looking forward to. It's built by God. No one in their right mind would fix their eyes into the future and their hopes upon something that can't even last as far as they can see. Right? We buy vehicles and we're already thinking... This thing, this more than likely not going to be the last vehicle I ever buy. Even the best ones. Are you going to drive it for 40 years? I, I can't imagine. Who would do that? We, we don't do that. But here we have that set before us. It's eternal, enduring forever. Man's city is Babylon. It won't last. It's of the earth. It's designed by the ingenuity of men and then twisted and distorted by Satan. Its materials are temporal and finite. Babylon is a fair-weather city. It's allowed to stand for a time, but it's destined to pass away. The church's best day is still to come. It's eternity. We're waiting. As good as it is, we're waiting for it to get good because it's built by God. That's its strength. Thirdly, the church is the dwelling place of God with men. Verse 11 says, having the glory of God. This is more Old Testament symbolism, but if you look back and trace this out, the idea is 
To have the glory of God is to have God's personal presence with you. The glory of God is God. The glory of God dwelling in the tabernacle and in the temple was God Himself coming down and dwelling amongst men. And even now, the church of Jesus Christ has the promised presence of God in our midst. Paul could say, you are God's building. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple? That's what he says. The church, both individually and corporately, is the dwelling place of God. Just as God tabernacled among men in the man Christ Jesus, so now the Spirit of Christ dwells in the mystical body of Christ on the earth. He dwells with us now. Now, we also know that we can can quench the Spirit of God. In our pride and sin, we can even forego some of the benefits of of the nearness of God. In our weakness, there's only so much of God's presence that we can actually endure, and God knows that. But in eternity, it will not be so. As we read in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. The church will be having the glory of God. We will have it with us. Never again will there be anything accursed. There will be no sin. There will be nothing which quenches that spirit. Nothing which forces us to stand afar off from God. Nothing in us that might might cloud the presence of God dwelling amongst the people of God. It's the dwelling place of God with men. That makes it strong. That, That forms its structure. God will be with us. Fourthly, the church is the place of communion with God. The place of communion with God. In verse 12 it says that it had a great high wall. Now follow me here. Walls are for protection. Walls keep out what is unwanted. Walls keep in what is prized or cherished. In ancient times, and you you see this in the Scriptures, very often if an enemy army was mounting an attack, they would come and they would build siege works, which were basically walls outside of the wall. You built your walls? Good. We'll build more walls so that you can't come or go. You can get no food or water. You can get no supplies. You're trapped. And they would usually use those siege works to come up higher than the wall that was built and then descend into the city and make their attack. This is why you see very often in the Old Testament, and the the typology here is is incredible, the language of of David coming in, it says he he rebuilt the millow, or he rebuilt the wall from the millow onward. They're building the walls, they're strengthening the ramparts, they're making this city impenetrable. When the exiles returned from Babylon, we would think, well, obviously the temple is the most important part. Start building the temple, but that's not what they do. They start building the walls because they want safety. Nehemiah wept because the city walls laid in ruin. And here we see the church, the the city dwelling of God, has a great high wall. In other words, the dwelling place of God with man is impenetrable. And and we'll probably look at the, the measurements and the way that this is described later. It's impenetrable. Now that's the case now. We have the presence of God and communion with God. Again, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I among them. That's the context of the assembly 
in the assembly there, Christ is with us. And He's not saying only when you do church discipline, but when the church gathers to wield those keys, even in the preaching, the welcoming of members, the excommunication of members, Christ's authority dwells in His assembly because He's with us. In Revelation 1, we saw in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Not will be the seven churches, they are. Churches are lampstands. Christ now walks in the midst of His churches. Even now Christ comes by His Spirit and we have communion with Him. But again, this is a shadowy communion. It's very often a quick passing, a brushing of His grace. A couple lines of a sermon grip and then four seconds later our minds are thinking somewhere else. Just very, very briefly. Our communion is often broken by wandering thoughts and the cares of the world, but in eternity we'll have a great high wall. As one commentator says, these walls represent, the, represent inviolable communion with God. In essence, we will be locked in with God. Nobody coming in, nobody going out. You say, well, I thought it was the whole earth. Exactly. Locked into communion with God. Our dwelling in communion with God will never be breached or broken. We'll never be disturbed by wondering thoughts or sounds or sights. Never imposed upon by the, by the cares of the world in our communion with God. You say, well, wait a second. You said there'll be other people there. Will they not disturb us? No. They will be there. But in glory, the innumerable multitude will be glorified so that even our relations and our interactions with the beloved saints will only serve to push us further in our communion with God. To have a conversation will only mean more communion with God because the Spirit of God will dwell in us in a full extent. Impenetrable communion with God. Unbreakable. Unbreachable. Five, the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The wall of the city had twelve foundations. On them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Even now, we know the household of God, the church of the living God, is a pillar and buttress of the truth built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's a blending of 1 Timothy and Ephesians 2. The apostles and prophets, that being the testimony of Christ as the Son of the living God. The message centering on and concerning the person and the work of Christ is the foundation of the church and the church's truth and the church's purpose, the church's ministry. Even now, the churches are lampstands fueled by the Holy Spirit to be lights of truth in the world. Now we learn truth, we preach truth, we hold fast to the truth, we labor to have our minds conform to the truth. We tell and we hear people say, preach the gospel to yourself daily. We're constantly just cycling through our minds the truths and the truth as it is in Christ. But at the same time, we war with error and false doctrine. We're often caught off guard by old heresies and new costumes. The pillar and buttress of the truth is very often pushed and tested by falsehood in, in every direction from within and from without. But then we will be the church victorious. Now we're church militant. We're at war. Then church victorious. Church triumphant. Now the foundations that foundation of truth is still going to be the same. It will be the faith once for all delivered to the saints as it is in Christ. But then it will not be the faith once for all delivered. It will be the sight 
once for all delivered. The full reality of Christ Himself is the foundation of the city, the people of God dwelling with God. The truth of who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, will forever be the foundation of God's dwelling with us and we with Him. Every time we look to behold God, we will behold Christ. And we will be reminded, that is the mediator. That's the way that I commune with God for all of eternity. It's all in Him. In Hebrews 12, again, Abraham was looking for a city with foundations. And here we see the glorified city of God is that city with foundations. Twelve foundations, sufficient for all the people of God. The heavenly dwelling of God with man is an unshakable city resting on the unshakable and eternal work of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. That will be the foundation of our dwelling with God unto everlasting. It will never change. Now isn't that so much more promising than Babylon? What could possibly entice the ones who already have all this? Everything that man builds crumbles. Even the strongest things that men build with time crumble. They rot. They rust. A lot of what man builds is built on lies and fabrications. At the very least, uncertainties. The heavenly city of God is built on truth, faithfulness, and reality. It's built on Him who is faithful and true and will be faithful and true unto eternity. So we see these saints are being reminded of of what exactly they had in the church of Christ and what they had to look forward to in eternity. It's not of the same, or it's not of a different substance. It's not a different essence. It's the same thing. The full, complete, glorified reality of every shadow of seed and seed of blessedness in this life still awaits us. We ought to rejoice in the gift that is the local church in the present age. Sure, there are impurities. Of course, there are errors. Of course, no Lord's Day is going to leave you fully satisfied. But what a gift we have. What an encouragement to endure to the end, at least to the next Lord's Day, just to, to, to be with the gathered people. That's our hope, to be with God and with His people. Take the very best moments of every blessed Sabbath you've had. Remove from them all impurity and lack. Glorify them to perfection in the presence of Christ. And that's our hope. And Christ Himself is the center of it all. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who purchased us with His own blood, who sanctifies us even now by His truth through His Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the glory of God incarnate tabernacling with men. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the city. No created thing can do for you what Jesus Christ can do for you. No offering is worth what He can provide and what He is. When you're tempted to peek over the wall of the church because you hear what sounds like joy and celebration in the world, it sounds like they're having a good time. sounds like they're having a lot of fun over there. I wonder what it is that's making everybody laugh and smile. Remember, it's a golden calf. It's an idol. It's a cheap... Imitation, it's a substitute, it won't last. Their songs will end. Their celebration is going to stop. Ours endures forever, unto eternity. 
because of what Christ has done, because He is there. That's our hope. Let's pray and worship Him.